The way that we teach curiosity is I don't think you can be curious about the world if you're not curious about yourself first. And most people are not curious about themselves, which links back to what we spoke about earlier. Most people do not know how they even feel anymore because they're so busy on the hamster wheel. And like you said, it is easier to stay busy than to connect with yourself and ask how you're really feeling and why you feel that way. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. My next guest is possibly Offline's mission personified. Penny Lacasso is a self-described happiness hacker. She's been voted one of the most influential female entrepreneurs in Australia and is currently writing her first book. But before that, she was working as a senior executive with a salary into the hundreds of thousands – And like so many women before her, she put her career before her own happiness. Penny seemingly had it all, the corporate role and salary, the house, the cars and the holidays. And then one day, she got up and she walked away from it all. Why? Because she realised she wasn't being, she was just doing. So instead, she chose to pursue happiness, both for herself and hopefully by 2025, 10 million other people. Penny is the founder of Be Kindred, the world's first program and measurement tool designed to humanise the future through the amplification of the intentional adaptability quotient. Think of it as the new EQ. She's on a mission to teach 10 million humans how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness. We met as speakers on Pink Hope's Women Who Lead panel, and the moment I locked eyes with Penny, I was captivated. As ambitious people connecting to the essence of who we are, Penny's the type of person we should be surrounding ourselves with. She shares so much valuable advice in this episode that I can't actually summarise it. Penny speaks in truth bombs, and if I'm honest... I hope this episode helps you face your fears and step into your future. Penny wasn't a listener at the time of recording, so I'm popping us in as I explained what it is we've been up to here on Offline. Team True Cell. Okay, here's Penn and I for Offline. Many of the women listening, um, we're sort of waking up to that concept of an internal voice um, and we're all on this journey to exploring our own truths instead of living the one that we were sort of programmed to desire. (laughs) I wanted to know if you can tell us about your moment of truth. Uh, So I always find this sort of question interesting because What I observe with people who make significant change, having spent 20 years working in this space, is that it's either a moment of truth or, you know, people say, where was the light bulb moment? And I always say it's either that sort of, you know, that huge shift in your life because of some catastrophe or something significant. But for me, it wasn't that. For me, I was the other which is kind of like the dimmer that gets turned up over time Mm -hmm. and then the light gets so bright that you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. So... For me, it wasn't a moment of truth. It was kind of like there was all these things that were going on in my life um, and they kind of accumulated over a period of time. And then it's interesting because I always say I think a lot of them were always there, you know, things that conflicted with my values, um, 
moments where I just sat there and went, oh, my God, am I really sitting here having this conversation? And, you know, and things that I observed and they were always there. I think I wasn't in tune to them. Mm. And the build-up over time of these things just basically, like I say, it was like the dimmer they got turned up and then all of a sudden it was like, what the f- can I swear? Yes, please. What the fuck am I doing? Like <laughs> I'm sitting here with this life and it, it's, I always say it's such a first world problem, you know. I'm sitting here with everything I could have ever wanted at the age of 39. You know, I had no debt. We had a beautiful home, beautiful cars. I had the executive career. I was at the top of my game. You know, everyone was telling me how I'd made it and, you know, um, I was sitting there going, is this it? Like I'm not fulfilled. Mm. And I think what was really interesting was at that moment I was like, this definition of success slash happiness, and I always use the two interchangeably because I don't think you can be successful um, unless you're happy, right? And so I was like, this yes, definition of success. that's su- interesting. Yeah. Mm. And so I was like, whose definition of success have I created? And what I realised when I started to ask myself these questions is this is not my definition of success. It's a societal one. And I honestly believe it's flawed because it's really about accumulating status and material items so that you can seek the approval of other people. And if I actually look at the things that actually bring me joy and happiness in the everyday, it's none of that shit. It Mm. is things like, and this was all I knew at that point in time. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew that the things that made me happy were um, positively impacting the lives of others, human connection, and being present and in the moment. Mm. And I was like, I'm not doing much of that stuff at all. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the moment when I kind of asked myself, what's my definition of success and what are the things that make me happy in the everyday? I was like, they're none of the things that really require money. It's all about um, being really rather than doing. And I'd spent a lot of time doing. doing. Well, can you tell us what you were doing at that time? So you had just said you were had sort of like climbed the top of the corporate ladder. Yeah. So I, it was such an interesting moment in my life. So I had a a three-year-old son and Shell, I was working as a senior executive with Shell. I, um, when my son was, I think, roughly around 14 months old, um, you know, I'd gone back to work early because Shell had tapped me on the shoulder during maternity leave and for the next great opportunity. And so I I sacrificed my maternity leave because I was like, oh, I can't miss this opportunity. That's so common. I hear that so much. Oh, seriously. I look back now and I go, you're an idiot. Anyway, thank God I woke up, but we can talk about that later. Um, So at 14 months after being back at work part-time, I got tapped on the shoulder and Shell said, oil and gas boom, mining boom in Perth, we need leaders over there, we need your skill set. And so basically they said, whatever you want, we'll make it happen. And I was like, I'm only going to work four days a week, I want one day a week with my son. Um, And they said, come over and help us manage the cultural evolution of the organisation as it grows from 100 to 1,000 people in the next two years as we work on building a multi-billion dollar floating LNG world first project. And I was like, game changer. Like I'm working with the most senior people in the company. I've got a blank slate to do whatever I want. I had a $250 million budget to build a collaborative work environment that had not been done before. Like I just, it was the dream job for a woman who was working part-time coming back from, you know, maternity leave. And I was like, and of course, like most women, I was like, oh man, I'll be like perfect parent, have the (laughs) career. Like I'm going to, this is like, you talk about balance. I just think balance is bullshit as well. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make all this happen. What ended up happening, I didn't work four days a week. I ended up working six days a week. I had Fridays off with my son, but I was working nights and weekends. I was freaking exhausted. I was shafting myself out of a full-time salary. And, you know, and it wasn't Shell's fault. It was my fault. You know, it was my fault. I basically squeezed a, more than a full-time job into part-time because I thought I could do it all. Mm. And I, so that was what I was doing. What advice, because, I mean, this is an interesting topic, what advice do you have for women listening who might find themselves there right now, how do we, um, I guess we need to go back in and renegotiate. So we've kind of tried to set up some structure and framework that we think is going to work for us and our family, but then in actual fact, we're doing a disservice to all of that. What would your advice be having worked at that sort of senior level? Like what would you want your employee? Of course, we want the employer to come to us and say this isn't working, but very rarely do we do that. We kind of sit in our own mess and is it this kind of like we just want to be seen that we can do it we don't want to admit that maybe we got it wrong yeah I think there's you know there's this 
this whole concept of having it all. And I just think you can't have it all. I, I don't think you can. I not Well, you can, but you'll just burn out. It's only a matter of time. And so the first thing I would say to someone who is in the position that I was in is do yourself a favour and ask yourself the question that it took me 39 years to ask, and that is what are the things that make you happy? And not as in, oh, my gosh, you know, if I had a million dollars, that would make me happy. What are the things in your life, yeah, where you find the most joy, right? Write them down. And then I would ask yourself, how often am I doing that? And what we find is most of the time people say these are the things I do in my spare time of which I have hardly any. Mm. And so I would say if there is a disconnect with between the things that bring you joy and the amount of time that you're spending with them, and often people say their children bring them joy, then I would be saying who's in control of your mind and your time? because I think that what most of us have forgotten is we feel, and I think, you know, we can talk about technology later, you know, I think the, um, the our brains are so overstimulated and so switched on in every minute of every day that many of us have forgotten that we have control over our time and our mind. Mm. Yeah, and distraction and the way technology is designed for distraction has, I think, played into that. It's one component of many. And so I would... Ask yourself, and again, ask yourself the question, who's in control of my time and my mind? And mm. at the end of the day, the, the answer is you are, right? And so if these are the things that bring you joy and you're not doing them much and you're in control of your time and your mind, then it's up to you to say, if this really matters to me, how do I actually work out how to bring more of that into my everyday? Yeah. And I often say I think our focus on doing is compromising our state of being. And I think what I see in my work is so many people feel every minute of every day because they want to be seen to be busy because, you know, if they're busy, it means that they're needed. It means that they're doing a good job. But I actually think your level of busyness is not a definition or not a, an indicator of how good you are at work. I actually think it's an indicator of how poorly you prioritise the things that really matter. Mm. That's so good. So I'll just park it there. That's, yeah, yeah. maybe um, when I think about that, who's in control of my mind and my time, right now it's my bloody ego. That's the oh, thing, isn't it? Like this that's is a good conversation. Because, <laughs> you know, once we – part of the things that bring all of us joy is slowing down, it's learning, it's being curious, all the things we're about to talk about, spending time with our family and our friends. And the thing is, the moment as busy people, the moment we stop what we're left with – is our thoughts. And that's the scary thing, isn't it? Because without a doubt, after I left my job, having thought I'd already done this work exploring self and I knew myself quite well, I was like, oh, Lordy, Alison, <laughs> still so much to do. And then often, I think, and my experience has been, we can kind of then turn away from that work because it seems almost harder than being busy and stressed. And then also, what do we have to talk about if we're like, how are you? Oh, good, so busy. You know, it's like, find a new something else to say. Try harder <laughs> in the moment, you know. That's exactly. So, I mean, part of what we teach, one thing that I say to people is if you feel busy and you've got no time for anything, the first thing you can do, the language you use will determine your ability to make change. And we basically, t well, I've done this myself and I can tell you it fundamentally changed my life. Stop using the word busy. Remove it from your vocabulary for one week. And when people ask you how you are, find another word, but it's got to be a positive word, right? So I use positively engaged. So when people ask me how I am, I say I'm positively engaged. And I've been doing this for 18 months and it has astounded me the impact that it's had. So the first thing it does is it impacts the noise in your head. Just by not using that word, busy perpetuates busy. Mm. And when you tell yourself you're busy, it's funny how your brain goes into overdrive. So I say I'm positively occupied. I've reduced the noise in my head first thing. The second thing that happens is when you say that to people, their mouths drop wide open. Yeah. And they go because they immediately before you even speak, they're expecting the response of you're busy, right, because it is default now. Mm -hmm. That is a, Now, busy is not a conversation opener. It's a conversation closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have a massive issue with human connection. That's another conversation, right? So when I say I'm positively occupied, people turn around and say, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I say my life is full but I'm doing things I love. Mm. right and so I then challenge them to to consider doing the same 
And then they say, what are you really doing? And the thing is, when you use language like this rather than busy, it's a, it's a bullshit call on yourself because if you say I'm positively engaged, right, and the reality is you're not, then you should be asking yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for people listening who know they don't want to be doing what they're doing anymore but financially that's kind of where I find it's a difficult thing because, of course, both of us took the leap, but perhaps we were in a position financially where we could, for a little bit at least, tread, yeah. tread water. Um, I think that's the hard thing. And it's like, and then this whole concept of doing work that's in your purpose and passion, I'm of the belief that you can't always monetize your passion <laughs> and you shouldn't always have to as well. So Mm-mm. what advice do you have for women? And maybe this is a more practical question. Like, you know, I've got friends that have saved up a year's salary in order to leave. That's very smart. So mm. I would say change is sacrifice. So the first thing, if you think that you're, I don't know, say you're earning a hundred grand a year and or even 80 grand a year, if you think that you're going to leave an 80 grand a year job and start all over into something that fundamentally lights you up that, you know, you've not done before or, you know, even just starting a business, even if you've got like, I had years of experience in corporate and running businesses. But if you think you're going to just jump over and immediately earn the same salary, I think that's delusional. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not reality. So realise that change comes with sacrifice and the reality is you need to, often you'll need to go backwards to go forwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so ask yourself if you're willing to do that. That's probably the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is I don't advocate that people just jump ship the way I did or the way, you know, you did and say I'm going to quit everything. The only time I would ever advocate that is if your job is making you so anxious yeah, mm. that it is actually you impacting sick. your mental yeah. health. Like, so what I recommend to a lot of people is that if you're not miserable and it's not impacting your mental health to the point of, you know, of serious, then I basically say, could you work part-time? Mm. Could you carve out a day a week just for a couple of months as a start point to start to experiment, to start to explore to start to think about, like you say, to do the work where you're not caught in the busy and you actually start to get curious about the things that light you up and where you perhaps would like to go next. Because what a lot of people say to me is, how did you work out what you wanted to do? Like I had this magical idea when I left corporate. The reality is I didn't know what I was going to do. But the reality, the other reality is that it is very hard for people in the current level of busy that they have and this constant feeling of every minute of every day. When you have no space to think, I would argue it is impossible to work out what lights you up and what's next. Oh, yeah. So if you don't create the space to think and that comes with sacrifice, often financial, yeah, it you won't you won't find it because mm. finding that thing comes with experimentation. Mm-hmm. And even if you think you've got the thing, once you start playing with it, I'll guarantee you it's not the thing. <laughs> it's not the thing or you won't end up where you thought you were going to end up. Yeah, this is my story. I've been talking a lot about um slow, deliberate, mm. slow, deliberate. So anytime my ambition starts to wind up, which lately it has been where I'm like, oh, I can do it all. I'm just like, Alison, slow, deliberate. Like you took this time. Yeah, me too. And I tell you, when we apply um, apply our corporate sensibilities or, you know, frankly, even our startup experience into our own idea, if we're very deliberate with our approach to building and creating our own business, I... And, and it hasn't even been to be polarizing. I've just really sat down and thought, I'm just going to wipe this slate clean. I'm going to do, as we've spoken about before we started recording, I'm going to say no to all of those oh. things. I think I should would usually have said yes to out of even fear or a lack mentality. Monetization, what would it look like if I did it a different way? And to your point, I can only run those scenarios because I've had the time. Without a doubt. You yeah. say deliberate. I use the word intentional and I think mm. they're very similar. And I think there's not enough of enough consciousness, intention or deliberate action in our society at the moment because, again, you can't have those things unless you've got the space to think. Yes. I want to go back to something you said, though, because I'm very interested in your perspective. You mentioned ego and how yeah. ego plays a role in um, you trying to navigate the path that you're on. Yeah. Help me understand with your ego. Are you? Is it ego in terms of you need to feel like you're um, 
you're needed or that you're successful or is it ego in the context of you um, are concerned about how, how or others' judgment of you? I'm always interested. So mine is all of the work I've been doing on myself, very deeply spiritual. The moment I woke up to the concept of self and ego mm. and that ego and personality, it's like a mind-body connection. Yeah. So when I talk about ego, that's me letting my thoughts and my feelings run my mind and run my life. And the moment I can like step back and sit in self and look objectively at my ego and my thoughts, like when I stop believing the thoughts my ego is telling me, I can start to laugh at it and go, oh, lol, you nearly had me there again. You've consumed me my whole life. I've led a life completely identified with my thoughts. And now, and this is where it gets hard for me because, again, as my ambition warms up or winds up, I have it's difficult. I have to really pull the reins back and go, let's go back to all of our conscious practices, Alison. Let's go back to self and sit in the seat of self, I guess, and then look at the ego and the thoughts and all the things it's trying to tell me to do and say and be. You know, and that's why I left the bloody job in the first place because I was so identified with what I was called and what everyone thought of me and the awards and the, you know, being profiled as this young digital pioneer. I got off on it. It was sick. Yeah, but, I mean, that's completely human, isn't it? And Exactly. I think what you're saying is so interesting because, I mean, what you're saying is you're still not perfect and I think that there's be- there's beauty in that mm. because the reality is if you were perfect I'd be more concerned. <laughs> yeah. But the fact is that you're conscious and so aware of it now that you can actually call yourself out and mm. say, okay, what if I do separate the two? And I talk a lot about how feelings are not facts mm-hmm. and, you know, and how, like you say, so many of us, be- we just because we think it, it doesn't mean we are it. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think... It comes back to I heard um, oh god was it Mo Gowett talk the other week and he's the uh, he's the, the head of Google X and he's also on a huge mission to teach a billion people how to be happier and he um, basically said we've forgotten that we are the boss of our brains mm. yeah and we can choose you know how we how we allow this ego to impact our life as you label it and I think once you realise you're the boss of your brain you really can sit there as you say and objectively pull the two apart and say, just because I'm thinking it, like, would, is this really what? Is this really who I am? Is this, is this real? Really, yeah. yeah. But I think being attached to, as you say, the accolades and how people say how wonderful you are and all of that, I, I mean, that's human. Yeah, it's like a drug, isn't it? Like, it is like a drug. And yeah. I think... I think a little bit of that is healthy. Mm. Yeah. Like if you, what if you do the work that you're now doing and you get the same response? Like, yeah. wouldn't that be magical? I know. And I'll tell you the, um, the platform in which that role gave me mm. the training and the rigor around what it meant to produce award-winning content, frankly, it set me up for success in a way that like I couldn't launch a shit podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't, there was no, there was no room for me to not do, not well, but to not at least produce something that had really high production values, editorial standards and journalistic integrity. So part of it is, well, it is a positive motivator for me to say like, what can I take what I've learned and apply it in a more conscious way? Because what I was Mm. doing before was asking millions of women every day to buy things they didn't need, you know, read stories that weren't adding value to their lives or improving their sense of self, certainly. And that's where I got to was I became physically uncomfortable with having to do that every day. I stopped oh. believing in what I was doing and and then broadly the publishing industry in general, <laughs> which is still a bit of a mess. But You raise a really interesting topic though that and something I've been exploring lately and, and again, it relates to a lot of the work. And I'm interested in your perspectives and it's this tension that exists between being an expert, so where you have a huge amount of success in a career of any type and you considered an expert in that field and the reality is that so much of what's got many of us to expert status um, now, you know, in the context of the skills we need for the future is just not relevant anymore. Yes, And so there's this beautiful tension between what I... I kind of, I heard term the other day of being an expert and, and experimenting and how you sort of shift from being an expert into, you know, that experimentation 
space where oh, yes. where things are unlearned uh, and and that creates the space for new learning um, and you you challenge what if I'm wrong about some of the stuff that's made me really successful? What if that no longer holds true? What would that look like and how would I go about proving it? And mm. what sort of unlike, I always talk about unlike minds rather than like minds, what sort of unlike minds would I seek out to really challenge my perspectives around this stuff? Yes, because, or interrogate my ideas because yeah. when we get into those senior positions, a lot of people just say yes to us. And it's like very rare now in my day-to-day, it's like I am being challenged, particularly on the monetization side, you know. So it is, yeah, that's interesting, unlike minds. Unlike minds. And I say that all the time. You know, people talk about like minds. I think the most powerful thing you can do is find the people that disagree, that fundamentally disagree with your belief set, unlike minds, and challenge you to look at the world through a different lens because that is actually what we are going to need to be able to unlearn the things that will not serve us in the future and create the space to experiment and be comfortable in experimentation and that risk of failure and things being messy and imperfect but come out the other side a better version of ourselves with a new skill set that we never even considered possible. In early 2019, Penny gave a TED Talk titled Fear is Your Future. In it, she reframed fear to be a positive driver for change. I wanted to know what she'd learned. What does fear hold us back from? And what are some of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves about fear? I actually think fear holds us back from realising potential that we don't even realise that we've got. Mm -hmm. And I say this all the time because I've lived and breathed it. You have absolutely no idea what you are capable of and I will guarantee you that you are capable of more than you ever imagined possible because if you had have told me four years ago, five years ago when I left corporate, that I could have achieved what I have now achieved in that period of time and some of the things that have opportunities that have come my way and, you know, and like you say, you know, accolades and and, um, things like that, I would have said you were freaking nuts. Mm. And it's only been through stepping into fear and like this term, and it's funny, I always like a term, but it's like, there's no point in giving people a term unless you can tell them how to use it. It's like, you know, get comfortable with discomfort. Well, that's great. Yeah. And (laughs) that's what I've learned. But what the fuck does that mean? Mm. Yeah. How, how does that apply to me in the everyday? Like, how would I apply that? So, you know, this idea of leaning into fear. And so I encourage people in the context of how do you realize this potential that you don't know you have? What I've learned to practice is what I call micro-bravery and it's doing little things every day that scare you and it only has to be one and it's only got to be relative to you. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Do something small every day that makes you feel uncomfortable Mm. because what I know is that if you do something small every day that makes you feel uncomfortable and it could be as simple as talking to a random stranger, yeah, or signing up for a guitar class that you've always wanted to learn the guitar but you've never learned a musical instrument in your life, anything, yeah, when you do this stuff on a consistent basis, over time you will build the courage and confidence to step into bigger risk and bigger discomfort. And what ends up happening is you just build this level of resilience to rejection, like they call it rejection therapy, that means that basically you get out there and you just start asking for all the things you've ever wanted and you don't let a no stop you Mm. because I say to people all the time, You can't get yeses unless you get noes. And so many of us fear. We fear being rejected. We fear being told no. And so that means that we just don't ask for the things that really matter. Or we assume, especially women, I say this all the time, we assume people will be able to read our minds. If we do a good job or if we, we, you know, do a good job or we just think these things, someone will just work it out and realise that that's what we want. It's bullshit. They won't because... People are too busy. So unless you start asking for what you want, unless you lean into this discomfort, unless you lean into the fear of rejection, you won't ever realise the potential that you have. Mm, And then perhaps also disconnecting um, our personal body, mind, feelings from our work. Mm. Like I've been doing a lot of that myself in going like, this is what I do. It's not who I am. And so if people don't like what I do, it doesn't mean they don't like me. 
Oh, oh without a doubt. Yeah. But I mean, but I, well, that's the other thing, you know, we're, we're so worried about being liked. And I've gotten to the point where at 43 years old, I don't give a fuck anymore if people no, don't me like either. me. I don't aspire to be liked by everybody. And and it's not that I'm an asshole or I'm, but the thing is, I've realized, and you know, that, that crazy moment where I delivered my keynote in my bathing suit two years ago, which was a <laughs> fundamental game changer. That moment, standing on a stage in front of 120 women in a bathing suit, that moment was the first time in 41 years where I realized I no longer needed the validation of other people. Yeah, as long as I was true to who I am and I was being a kind and what I think pur- purposeful person in the, in the world. It didn't matter what anyone else thought of me. What mattered was what I thought of myself. And mm. as long as I held true to that, I was going to have a decent life, mm. you know. Life was going to be okay. And I cannot tell you how liberating it is to stop b- aspiring to be liked by everybody. Yes. Because I, I think as yeah. women we, we like to please. Yeah, you would. Oh, totally. And, like, managing leading big teams of women in my old job, you know, where I arrived and, like, on counsel and guidance from my mentor who was my CEO at the time or a mentor of mine was, Alison, you don't need them to like you. You just need them to respect you. And so what are you going to do to gain their respect? So true. And that was the moment for me where I was like, fuck yeah. Okay. Now I can actually get operational here because dancing around the, are you okay's and I'm sorry's and, you know, I just banned sorry. We're just not going to apologize to each other for weird shit anymore. Oh, women should ban sorry altogether, yes. seriously. I think that we, I, and again, I see it all the time, women apologise for things that, that they don't need to apologise for and I keep saying to them, if you keep saying sorry for things that are not doing things wrong, what you don't even realise is that every time you, you, you know, apologise for, I don't know, saying something or doing something, you're programming subconsciously into the person who's receiving that sorry's mind that you're constantly wrong even Mm. if you're not. So you're impacting their perception of you, Mm. yeah? And so they will recall that when they think of you in the future. You're programming your pathways. So I'm not saying don't apologise, but I'm saying use your sorry very wisely and don't use it often Mm. Uh, unless, you know, unless you've really done something wrong. But if you brush past somebody, you don't need to apologise for that. We do that all the time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um. So your company, Be Kindred, is on a mission to teach 10 million humans how to intentionally adapt in mm. order to future-proof happiness by 2025. And I was like, shit, that's only five years away. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell me or tell us, what is the driving force behind our future unhappiness? So what's potentially the thing that's going to make us unhappy if we don't make change? What's going to make us unhappy? From what I observe, I don't think that something's going to make you unhappy. I think that most people are already unhappy. Yeah. Um, Maybe we're just not admitting it. Well, uh, if you create the space, it's a free-for-all, you know. So we create a lot of space for people to have these conversations and what we see is people just go into meltdown because they're dying to talk about what's really going on. So what I observe in my work and, you know, whether it's I'm speaking here or whether like last week in San Francisco in front of 2,000 people is that most people are just not happy. Most people are overwhelmed. They're anxious. They're lonely. They're busy. They feel disconnected. And, you know, we can talk about all of those things because each of those things I would argue is at epidemic proportions. And I think um, what it's a bit like who's in control of your mind, yeah? Mm. What people don't realise because we don't create the space to think about this stuff stuff often enough is that happiness is not external, it's internal. Happiness is within you. Yeah, you kind of, you have the keys to your own happiness. It's really up to you whether you choose to work out where where you left those keys, Mm. yeah, Or, or how you can find those keys to kind of unlock happiness in the everyday. Mm. And I think that what I observe is so many people are seeking happiness from external things. Yes. And I think that if you are in pursuit of happiness and thinking that it's going to be delivered from more money, a bigger house, a nicer car, better clothes, a nicer iPhone, 
that's not where happiness is found. Happiness is within you. Mm, yeah, I mean, I bought all of the shoes. I definitely had <laughs> every single of the latest whatever and um, they're just sitting in my cupboard now and I look at them and I ke- I've kept them Yeah, be- because they remind me. Reminder, yeah. Of um, all the things I'm no longer interested in or wedded to, certainly. Um, one of the things I admire about your approach is the generational lens you're taking on happiness mm. in the future. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about Gen Z. What's happening to them? And maybe even from a parental lens, like what do, what do parents need to be doing now? I mean, I just worry so much about do they even have core sort of social skills or? I had a really interesting chat yesterday with an amazing woman who I know called Madeline Grummet and she is the co-founder of Girl World and they work with young girls um, from Gen Z who, um, uh, and obviously trying to help them create future-ready skills. And amazing work that they're doing, right? And she said they're running, and I might get the name of this wrong, but they're running um, a workshop um, with a group of young girls uh, in the next couple of weeks and it's called um, Who's the Selfie? And mm. when she was telling me this, I just, I don't know about you, I just felt sick. And she said that basically what has happened now with these young girls, and I'm only sharing this because, I mean, I can talk about all the stuff I know, but this was a conversation yesterday. It just blew me away. And she said, like you spoke about, she said these young girls are so consumed with the online profile or image that they present that it's almost confused them now to the point where they don't know who they are. Mm. So that that um, online self has confused who the real self is and they don't even know who the real self is anymore because so much time is being consumed curating the online self. And she said that on average they take 10 selfies a day. She said, but, you know, for, for a lot of girls it's a lot higher than that. And all I could think about was the time. Yeah. I'm like, imagine what you could do with that time in terms of, and, and I don't imagine that's making anyone feel good taking all these selfies. So um, what's happening with that? I just thought that was interesting in the yes, context of very. what we're talking about. So what's happening with the next generation, what I observe and what I read um, and what I hear from parents, I have everywhere I talk, I have parents come up to me after I talk and the amount of times, God, if I had a dollar for every time, I would be very wealthy. People come up to me and say, my eight-year-old's suffering from anxiety you know, my 15-year-old doesn't come out of her bedroom. My 17-year-old son just games all day, every day. Um, they, you know, they're not happy. Um, they're cutting themselves, like crazy stuff. And so what we're seeing now, I think, is we've got a highly intelligent generation because they've got more access to information than any generation that's come before them. They are more socially aware than any generation that's come before them. And I think I always think of them as a generation with heart. You know, these kids really care about, um, world issues. They care about the environment. Um, they care about the impact that we're having. Very um, politically on the world. engaged, aren't they? At quite a young they age. They are. Yeah. And, but I also think that oh, look, it's like the double-edged sword. I think because we've now given them access to things that we never had access to at the same um, age, the complexity of the issues that they are now thinking about at a much younger age. Mm. I think would make you anxious. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're sitting there thinking that the world, we are killing the planet and the environment's going to be dead in your lifetime and you're only 13 years old, I mean, that's a pretty heavy load. And it's yes. not a, a load Talk about that we an existential had. crisis. Yeah, we didn't have, I didn't have that load at 13. I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff because the information wasn't there. So like I say, it's not, it's a double-edged sword. The mm. other thing that we are seeing, which is probably where my work comes in and I get really concerned is that Kids spend so much time online now that they will opt for digital connection over human connection. And we are wired for human connection. We are wired for it. You know, like if you weren't humanly connected to your tribe back in the days when we were cavemen, you know, it meant isolation. It it actually meant that you wouldn't be able to survive. Mm. If your tribe disowned you because you weren't connected, you wouldn't survive. And so whether we like it or not, we are wired for it. We're wired for connection. We're wired to feel this need of belonging. And the less we humanly connect, which is what we're seeing, I think, in the next generation in bucket loads, the less we humanly connect, the less we can read each other's body language. And we know that body language is the majority of any communication. Mm. Yeah, Words is a very small percentage. 
So the less we can read body language, the less we can empathise with one another, and we know that empathy is a key skill for the future, the less we do those things, the less likely we are to have difficult human conversations, the sort of conversations that allow us to move through challenging things and solve real problems, complex problems, and the less we do that, the less likely we are to build, I would say, a pretty solid base of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that lack of human connection and the on-flow effects of it is significantly impacting the next generation's um, ability to be as resilient as past generations. Mm. And I think that is why we are seeing a mental health epidemic and anxiety epidemic in the next generation beyond anything we've ever seen. Suicide rates are beyond anything we've ever seen. And my biggest concern as the mother of a nine-year-old is that I sit there and go, this is not the future I want for my son. Mm -hmm. Because if these kids are not coping when they're fully cared for, right? What's going to happen when they have to go out into the world and get a job and support oh. themselves and pay bills and run companies? Like if you can't cope as a child, how the hell do you cope as an adult? Mm. And how are we helping them learn skills or, you know, coping? Or I don't know, maybe in the future you won't have to humanly connect, but I think that's problematic. I mean, you can already go through a day almost yeah. without interacting with a human at all. Mm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very passionate about human connection because I think it is foundational to being human mm. and for us actually being able to lead happy and joyous and fulfilled lives. Yes, and I guess this is where your work at Be Kindred really comes into its own. Um, I've written down that it's a compass of sorts. I don't know if I've got that right or not, but um, you've developed. Oh, I like that. Do you like that? I don't know. I was yeah. like, it feels to me like it's almost something we're going to use as a tool to navigate. Um, so it's called the Intentional Adaptability Quotient. Yep. Um, I heard you describe it as the new EQ. Mm. Uh, I've been listening. Um, what is it and how does it sort of intersect with all that stuff you've just been talking about? Because it's, I mean, I want to go through kind of the core pillars and stuff, but can you just tell us what it is and how you came up with it? And Yeah. So um, about probably about two years ago, I um, people kept asking me, how do we, uh, how do, what skills do I need for the future? Yeah. And people, leaders in large companies kept saying to me, how do we help our people cope with the pace and scale of change? Because they're not coping. Right. And companies were concerned because obviously less than 70% of employees are engaged. As I said, most people are not happy in their work. And I think that most companies are not realizing the level of innovation that they'd like to. Yes. Okay. And so I come from an angle of making people happier, but I can meet companies where they're at because their motivations and the skills that are needed to address the two, I think, are the same. Yes. If we make people happier, they'll be more productive, they'll be more innovative, and they'll be more engaged in their work. Mm. But how do we do that? So I came with that sort of question in my mind. I started to do a lot of sort of research because I love to read. And I came across an article out of Harvard which spoke about an AQ, an adaptability quotient. And it spoke about it being more important than your EQ or your IQ in the context of the future, the new competitive advantage. And I was like, well, uh, this makes sense to me because I think I've been teaching adaptability for years. Like it's directly linked with change. But what I realised when I connected this concept to what I was seeing in my work and what people were saying to me, I realised that adaptability on its own was problematic because what we were seeing in our society was a lot of what I term unconscious adaptation. You only need to look at the impact of unconscious adaptation, for example, with the iPhone. So the iPhone's been around just over 10 years, been around about just over 10 years now, and basically what has happened is we have unconsciously adapted. And so that unconscious adaptation is now playing out into a whole host of issues in terms of addiction, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and lack of human connection and all of these things. So I said, okay, I want to rename a global term and what if we could teach people how to bring meaning and intention to the forefront of their decision-making? And so I renamed it and I said, I'm going to call it intentional adaptability. I'm going to, when I, and when I couldn't find anyone out there with a way to teach it or measure it, I was like, right, I'm going to create the profile of someone that I think is a hypothesis. It, um, how would they show up as a set of behaviours in the everyday? And I base that a lot on the experience that I'd have because I've, I've lived and breathed this stuff myself. I don't teach anything that I haven't experienced. Mm. So I built that profile and I said, well, if this is the set of behaviours, how would you measure that? And so then I created a, an assessment, a set of questions to ask someone to look at how intentionally adaptable they were. And then I said, okay, and how would we teach foundational skills, base level skills 
to be able to turn the dial up on these things. And that was how the model that we're now using and we've been experimenting, you know, with companies like KPMG, Mercer, Deloitte. We're about to start with Adelaide University for undergrads and faculty in the same classroom. We've been working with a grammar school with teachers and kids at the age of 17 learning intentional adaptability in the same classroom, which plays into the intergenerational application of what we're teaching. It doesn't matter how old you are. But that was kind of where it started. Mm. I just have to say, congratulations. <laughs> Honestly, like, I think I'm crazy. <laughs> talk, talk, talk about making a difference. Um, so there's three core pillars mm. of IAQ. Um, I'm conscious of your time, but let's try and unpack them briefly. Yeah. Um, the first one is um, focus. Mm. So many of us, as we've discussed already, are in the business of being busy. (laughs) Talk to us about focus and how that comes into it. So the reason we start with focus is because when we went out to all of these clients and said, help us build something that makes sustainable change, that really helps people effectively navigate the future of a foundation of intention and meaning, we started with curiosity. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is we started teaching curiosity because we thought that was the start of IAQ. And what we learned very quickly is people kept telling us they were too busy to be curious. Oh, and I was like, how insightful is this? Yeah. I'm too busy to be curious. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a leader in an organisation, which is the people we were working with, and you're too busy to be curious... I don't know how well you would understand your people. Therefore, I don't know how well you'd be able to motivate those people. And equally, I would argue you're not very, being very innovative yeah. if you're not curious. So we went far out. We've got this all wrong. And this is what I love about, you know, that point that I said earlier, letting go of this need to be an expert yes. and saying, you know what, I need to be a fucking experimenter. And so I now think about myself as a researcher. This was all an experiment. And through this experiment, I went, right, we're going to let go of curiosity. The order of this is wrong. And we went back to focus. Mm -hmm. And so when we teach focus, it is about dealing with what we call the busy epidemic and teaching people, people that busy is bullshit. And so the way that we do that is we teach people how to focus in a world that is now designed to distract you because so much technology now is designed from a neurological perspective to actually wire your brain for distraction. So we teach people how to switch off in order to switch on and then, and how to create space for more of what matters. And that is why we start with focus. Um, and the other thing I think that's important is uh, there's no silver bullet with this stuff. So I can't teach you how to do this in 24 hours. Mm. Everything that we teach is about shifting mindsets and behaviours and we know behaviours slash habits take time and consistent effort. And so everything that we teach is through what we term experiential learning and it's run as challenges and it's run across a month and you have to you have to actually embed the yeah. the sorts of things that well, we are teaching. Well, it's an unlearning, isn't it? So Correct. we've got to unlearn all the stuff we've learned. In yeah. your everyday um, because for us, like to your point, this whole monetization thing, I love the term, for us I'm willing to sacrifice the monetization in order to create a program that develops sustainable change and truly impacts lives in a positive way because I think the monetization will become a byproduct of that. And for me, if we are successful in what we're doing with the corporates, it will enable us to make what we're doing accessible to the people who need it most who could never afford to pay what it's costing to develop this now. Mm, So good. Um, Tell me, do you have any advice for us as individuals in our everyday lives Mm. to help change that busy culture. Like part of what I'm trying to do is think about what do my boundaries look like and how are people trying to access my time and why is there an expectation that that's okay that you get me on? I don't know you personally, but for some reason you're on my Facebook Messenger, then you're on my Instagram DM, then you've emailed me, then I'm on WhatsApp, then we're texting. It's just like we're in this constant um, mode of response just response, 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 and we can't get into sort of what I'm calling like proactive creativity, which is the curiosity essentially. What advice do you have for people to sort of challenge that busy culture? Like what can we be doing? Like I turned the notifications off my phone for Instagram today. (laughs) That was step one for me. (laughs) Uh, Look, I think it really depends on where you're at and everyone's at a different level. I can tell you some of the things that I've done and then I would say if you find them 
that they resonate or there's something that you might want to try, I'd just say pick one thing and start small. But I've, like, I've gone through everything. So I have removed all social media and even email off my mobile phone. Have you? Yep. The only thing I have on my phone now is what um, Tristan Harris, who is an amazing guy, well worth looking at, he is an ex-Google ethicist that used to run what I term a human control room, Mm -hmm. which is filled with these um, attention engineers that actually design technology to distract you. And he talks in his TED Talk about in and out apps. And so the only apps I have on my home screen of my phone are things that I would go in and out of like Google Maps or like my calendar. And I, so you won't find any social media on my mobile phone and you won't find any email. Now that wow. makes a lot of people feel really uncomfortable, but I would be asking yourself, why does it make you feel uncomfortable? Well, the first thing that comes up for me is like, how am I going to get anything done? Like the only way I can get through my email is by responding to them when I'm walking, when I'm commuting, when I'm on the lounge. So I would argue, <laughs> do you need to respond to everyone that emails you? And why do you need to I respond? Know, because I'm a perfectionist. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is totally it. Like I want to, um, I want to fulfill the perception you have of me is that I am this person and I will respond and I am going to give you my personal attention, but you're so right. I've been thinking about it so much. I'm like, I, in the process of answering a hundred emails a day, I'm slowing my business down. I'm not creating, I'm not. Correct. Yeah. What's the cost? So ask yourself, what's the cost of all those responses? And and what is it? What is it taking you away from? And, you know, again, these are not, it's not my question to answer, but it's kind of like it, if it's more important to you to respond to those emails, then, then do it. If that's what lights you up and makes you happy, I'd say do it. But what I often hear from people is it's not. It's actually taking them away from the true impact that they want to have. And, you know, it, I... I say this, but I came from exactly the same place as you. You know, I don't respond to everything anymore because what you will find, because you're, you're still early days, Al, mm. you know, what you'll find is it just gets bigger. It gets bigger and bigger and the more people want, the more, I suppose, visible you become, the more people want your time, the more random requests you'll get. And, you know, I love human connection, but I cannot possibly respond and connect with every person that asks me to because I would never, ever um, be able to achieve what I want to achieve. I won't mm. be able to create the impact. Mm. Um, so so that's, so my, get rid of all the, like, seriously, game changer. Um, I would ask yourself, you know, if getting rid of all that stuff on your phone gives you a fear of missing out, I would actually reframe FOMO. Um, there's a term called JOMO, Joy of Missing Out, was mm-hmm. founded by one of the base camp uh, or created by one of the base camp founders. And I just think that seriously, there is so much joy in having space and time in your life that's not full of other stuff, just space to be. Because what I've realized is the more that I have time to think and the more space that I have like where I'm walking the dog and I'm not listening to a podcast and I'm not trying to fill that time doing emails and looking down, the more spontaneity comes into my life Mm. and the more magical things happen. Because if you feel every minute of every day, you are closing down the doors to spontaneity and possibility just presenting itself to you because you're Mm. not open to it. Mm. Okay, let's move on to the second one. Um, It's courage. Mm. So what what does being courageous need to look like in order to future-proof our happiness? So when I talk about um, teaching courage, what we teach um, is basically to help people learn how to use fear and failure as levers to create the change that they want for themselves in their work and in the world. And so this comes back to what we spoke about earlier in terms of the TED Talk that I did, and it's all around using or reframing your mindset around fear and actually seeing fear as a positive, not a negative. Mm-hmm. And why is courage important? Well, because without courage, you will never step into fear, which I would argue means you will never take risk. And if you're not taking risk, I would argue that directly links to what we spoke about earlier in terms of experimentation. You're not pushing yourself or trying, you know, hard enough to realise the things that you really want. Mm. Do you know what? This is like, talk about not being in the moment. You're talking and you're saying so many truth bombs. I'm like, how am I going to edit this so that like, what <laughs> what pull quotes am I going to use? How am I going to start the episode? There's so much good stuff in here. Um, <laughs> so good. Um, 
And then the third pillar is curiosity, which we've spoken about a little bit. You know, I will say to you, while I've been in the business of being busy of late, um, I did start offline with this mandate of curiosity and that I would continue to expand my worldview and my thinking and explore different modalities. It is true, though, that what we were saying before, like being curious is something that we traditionally now reserve for when we have time off. So we go on holiday and we explore the book or the podcast or the whatever, check out the TED Talk or when really it's like we should be nourishing ourselves with that stuff every day, like what would it look like to be doing more of that and less of the response mode? Yeah, so this is what's been fascinating about teaching curiosity. Now, again, curiosity like human connection is innate. We are born with it. Anyone who's been around little children knows that we are the most curious beings, but we bash it out of ourselves through the constructs that we've created, you know, through um, the way that school works, the way universities work, and then we enter the corporate world and it's like you don't want to be too curious because you're seen as the disruptor. Yeah. And so, you know, we we bring it back. And basically what's been fascinating in terms of teaching curiosity is people tell us that, just like you said, people see curiosity as something they do in their spare time of which they tell us they have none. So <laughs> what is, first I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And what we've realised is two things. One thing is people think they are way more curious than what they really are. So we, we assess people through our IAQ assessment and we ask them, how curious are you? And they're like, oh, I'm off the charts curious. I'm really, <laughs> you know? And we worked with some teachers recently who were like saying to me, oh, we are the most curious beings you'll ever meet. Now, I think when you think you're the most curious person in the room, I think that you are creating a barrier to your curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't think a truly curious person would never be as curious as what they want to be. Like they're never going to be perfect. So the funny thing about that is that when we unpack the assessment, they'll rate themselves very highly. But when we ask them questions like how often do you surprise yourself, they'll go, oh, maybe I've surprised myself once in the last three months. And it's like, hang on a second. If you're a curious person, you'd be surprising yourself every day. Yes. Yeah. So that's the first thing that's interesting is there's a real disconnect between how curious people think they are and how they really are. And the other thing that's been fascinating to us is that people's definition of curiosity is extremely narrow. So people think curiosity is doing a podcast, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, about something new. But the way that we teach curiosity is I don't think you can be curious about the world if you're not curious about yourself first. And most people are not curious about themselves, which links back to what we spoke about earlier. Most people do not know how they even feel anymore because mm-hmm. they're so busy on the hamster wheel. And like you said, it is easier to stay busy than to connect with yourself and ask how you're really feeling and why you feel that way. So we teach curiosity about self. We then teach curiosity about others. How do you actually get curious about other human beings and how do you learn to have curious conversations? So and what we mean by that is what we find is most people are very good at giving opinions and making statements in meetings. What if you just sat in a meeting and asked questions, curious questions the whole Mm. time? That is a curious conversation. You never learn anything by talking. You learn by listening Mm -hmm. and asking questions. And then once you've dealt with those two things, then we say, okay, now it's a good time to be curious about the world. Mm -hmm. But most people go straight to the world. I want to be curious about AI. AI." Well, that's great. But if you're not curious about yourself and others, I'd argue you're missing a massive part of curiosity Mm -hmm. by jumping to AI, for example. I've just got two more questions and that's kind of a good segue into my second last one. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the jobs of the future? Like if we've got people listening who, and I'm even like, gosh, hopefully they'll still need great storytellers. (laughs) I can tell stories across different mediums. Um, Tell us about what you're hearing and seeing. And if we're going to up-level and upskill for the future, what should we be thinking about and and looking at? Hmm. I find this fascinating because I've heard a couple of very, uh, very interesting people say that the, the most powerful thing you can study at university, if you even want to go to university anymore, which is a whole other conversation. It sure is. Um, <laughs> is uh, philosophy. And I fundamentally agree with that because mm. philosophy is, like I said earlier, it's about challenging yourself to look at the world through a different perspective and explore big questions in deep ways and complex problems. Um, and I find that fascinating because in my generation, it was like if you went to school and did a university and did philosophy, it was like a road, it was considered a path to nowhere. It was the dead end, you know, degree. So I, one, I think, I don't think about jobs. So what are the jobs of the future? I don't think about jobs of the future because there's some brilliant stats out there that things that say things like um, by the time my nine-year-old enters the workforce, 65% of the jobs that exist today won't exist. Wow. 
And I don't think anyone can predict the future. If they say mm. they can, I say bullshit. You know, it's, it's very rare that people predict the future with a high level of accuracy. So what I would say is don't focus on what jobs will exist. I'd actually say what jobs don't exist that you'd love to create. And, I mean, I'm an example of this, you know, like mm. don't, I think the beauty of the, the space that we are now in is you've never had greater accessibility to resources and connections around the world, yeah, in terms of the affordability to make whatever it is that you want to make happen. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't exist, you've got this beautiful blank canvas to create it and make it. And we see this all the time. I mean, far out, I call myself a happiness hacker. I'm claiming, claiming to be the world's first because I freaking made it up. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can. Yeah. Because you can. Um, I created IAQ. Yeah. Adaptability quotient existed. And Harvard said that was the next big thing. And I said, fuck, I don't agree, Harvard. I'm going to go and make something else up. Like, this is what we need more of. Don't be defined by go and code or, you know, um, I don't know, go and be a data analyst. I mean, yes, don't get me wrong. I think I think someone said to me yesterday, 75% of the jobs of the future will have some element of STEAM um, associated jobs with, you know, science, technology, um, oh, God, what's the engineering, um, arts and maths, okay? But I think the most powerful thing you can do is look at um, being creative, and um, and exploring, you know, bigger problems and complex problems and looking at how you could potentially turn that into something meaningful for you. Mm, I think it's inspiring. Don't be constrained by what exists. Mm-hmm. We need we are going to need people to make up the jobs of the future. Yes. And I don't think we have enough people out there thinking um, that broadly. Yes. Find a problem that you care about. And you solve know, it. Yes. And, and solve it. Or if you don't, I mean, I'm not, and I, I'm also a big advocate, don't, not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. And I think we've yes. over-glorified the entrepreneur. And there's plenty of people out there trying to solve big problems that need help and need entrepreneurs to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And entrepreneurs. So nice. Yeah. Okay. People who, you know, work for others and do it really bloody well, but, you know, want to do something that they're passionate or engaged in. Mm-hmm. So work out the problems you're passionate about, be curious and start to explore who's doing stuff in this space. Yes. Yes. What are my values? And can yeah. I find a business that's aligned with them? Um, so I end each of my episodes by asking my guests the same question. And I have an inkling you might not know what it is, which is very exciting for me because most people know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, so as I said earlier, offline exists as an exploration of self. And particularly for women, who are we without the labels that we put on ourselves? So for you, happiness hacker, CEO, ex-corporate executive, mother, um, who are we without those labels? And when we're sitting in this concept of true self, um, who are we? So who are you when you're sitting in your true self and, and how do you identify with that? Oh, when I'm sitting in my true self, I'm imperfect, unpolished, (laughs) a swearer, (laughs) a a love, an absolute lover, um, a connector, a yogi. I have a very strong connection to the mat and and what that brings to my life. Um, And I'd say an unconventional mother who's using her beautiful little boy as an experiment to try and create what I think is the next iteration of conscious humans. Mm. Yeah. Pen, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I've been really looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.